In Romans chapter 11, we have a virtually unknown prophecy of the rapture of the church. Most people would never look at Romans chapter 11 to find the rapture of the church, but it's there. And I want to show that to you. But we have to put it, as always, within context. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now if their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Paul asked the question, have they stumbled that they should fall? Who's the they? Always identify who's being spoken of. It's talking about Israel. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Absolutely not. How is it that we have this growing trend among members of the church to say that God is done with Israel? It's absolutely ludicrous. I believe it's blasphemous because it declares that God doesn't keep his promises. And by the way, if God got fed up with the Jews and decided to stop working with them, what guarantee do you have that he's not going to get fed up with the church and start working, stop working with us? If he casts them aside and is not going to fulfill his promises, how do you know, what assurance do you have that he won't cast us aside and fail to fulfill his promises? God is a faithful God, and he always fulfills his promises. Certainly not, he says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Does that sound familiar with anything that we've seen before? You remember Deuteronomy 32:21 when Moses was talking to the children of Israel and he told them that they were going to go after other gods and because of their idolatry, God would uh, be filled with wrath and he would deal with them in judgment and he would drive them out of their land and he would scatter them among their nations. And then he said, but I will provoke you because you provoked me to jealousy by these false gods. I will prov provoke you by a people who are not a nation. How can you have a people who are not a nation? Well, it's very simple. You just get people from every nation. Every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every kindred, from all over the world, you gather together an entirely new people, an entirely new creation 
and you call it church. Verse 12, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some. Paul understood the, the role that God had for the church in relationship to Israel, and he understood as the apostle to the Gentiles and as the example that we're to follow, he had a responsibility to provoke. The idea here is to provoke them by giving them a demonstration of what they could have been, of what they could have had, of what they could have received, and they rejected, and therefore we'll take what they rejected and we'll use it and magnify Jesus Christ in such a way that when God calls this people back onto the scene in the tribulation period, what is it that's going to motivate them to go out with a zeal that will evangelize the entire world? Think of this. The church has been working on reaching the world for 2,000 years and we're not done. There are, there are tribes, there are people, there are cultures all over this world that don't have the Bible in their own language. There are many, many unreached people. What we have not accomplished in 2,000 years, the children of Israel, beginning with 144,000 Jewish evangelists, are going to do in seven years. That 144,000 Jewish evangelists is going to be like unleashing on the world 144 Apostle Pauls. And by the way, I believe they're going to be uh, restored to supernatural gifts, supernatural powers, uh, there's probably going to be things going on during the tribulation like Philip evangelizing a guy down in Gaza and then all of a sudden he's in the next town and he's evangelizing people there. God is going to be working in just absolutely astounding ways. But we have our part to play for those people. What we do is going to make a difference for them. And this provocation is not a provocation of an arrogant or an insolent attitude toward them or a looking down on them or a diminishing uh, of their value. It's a recognition that everything that has happened leading up to uh, the time of the church, we are indebted to them. As Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am a debtor. You and I are a debtor, and we're a debtor to the grace of God, not only to those that we should go to in our great commission, but we are a debtor particularly the nation of Israel for all that we have. The Bible you hold in your hand, you would not have without them. How great is our debt to them. By the way, this idea of provoking is kind of on Paul's mind because if you back up to chapter 10, verse 19, he says, but I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So there's a repetition here running through Romans 9, 10, and 11, and it has a theme, and the theme is it's not just what God's going to do with the children of Israel or what he's done with them in the past. It's what part do we have to play? And I believe Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a central portion of the entire book because it gives us, in a sense, our marching orders. Look at this. If you just back up to uh, Romans chapter 10, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Who's the they? Same they. Same people. He's talking about the children of Israel. 
How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? We quote this all the time as a part of our missionary endeavor. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of uh, good things. But what is the context? The context is the role of the church in ultimately bringing the children of Israel back to God. And then he goes into the whole thing about provocation. And so we come up to Romans chapter 11, and he gives us a picture. And in our study, in the prophetic argument, we have seen two perspectives. The perspective of the Old Testament prophet, the perspective of the New Testament prophet. We've seen that there are two entities, the nation of Israel and the church. We've seen that each has a different message. To the disciples, Jesus gave the message. And remember the word gospel simply means good news. The good news they proclaimed was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's not our message. Two prophetic perspective, two covenants, two people, two messages. Now we see two trees. Pick up in verse 15. He says, For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. In other words, the, the uh, gathering in of the first fruits, it was the, it was the first fruits of the harvest. And they would, they would take that and they would offer it to God. And you take that grain from the field and you grind it and you make it into uh, a lump of dough. If the first fruit is holy, the lump of dough that comes from it is holy, correct? He goes on to say, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So now we have a picture. We have a tree. The tree comes from the root. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, and I want you to notice, they in verse 11 shifts to you in verse 13, and he tells us who the you is. It's you Gentiles which formed the church for the most part. If some of the branches, meaning them, were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them you became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast. Do not boast against the branches. If you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Here's the first command. Do not boast. Let me ask you a question. Is it not boasting when we disregard the debt that we have to everyone who came before? Is it not boasting when we come to a conclusion that God's done with Israel? Is it not a boast when we say that we've taken their place, that all the Old Testament promises were spiritual in nature, and we've become spiritual Israel, and therefore he's done with them? And I've even heard Christians say today, if, if uh, the nation of Israel that exists over there right now is wiped off the map, doesn't make any difference at all. It's ludicrous. It's blasphemous. I hear pastors say this. Doesn't matter if Iran wipes Israel out. Doesn't have anything to do with us at all. Really? Are we not boasting against, against the root on which we're built? I think we are. Verse 19. Paul is great as a teacher. He had the a Socratic method that the Pharisees liked so much, which was to ask questions. 
he would ask questions anticipating the question in the mind of his, of his listeners, and then he'd answer his own questions. So here he goes. You will say to me then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. God got rid of them so that he could pull me in. That obviously makes me superior and them inconsequential. Well said, verse 20. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. I wonder how much real fear there is in any of us of failing to play the part that God intends us to play in this most crucial time of church history. Verse 21, if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Is Paul anticipating something here? Verse 22, therefore consider the goodness and the severity of God. If you have never been through a time of real scourging, if you've never been a time when God has chastened you severely, this is what Paul's talking about. He's saying there's something that each of us as a believer in Jesus Christ needs to think about as we look at the blessed hope, how wonderful, how gracious, but is there severity mixed in with the mercy? I believe there is. By the way, as we've seen, this is followed by what event? We call it the Bema Seat of Christ. The Greek Bema was the place of reward, but it was also the place of loss. So consider the goodness and the severity of God. On those who fell, severity. How severe has God been to the people he chose? 2,000 years they've wandered this earth. 2,000 years driven to the first, furthest extent of the planet. 2,000 years of hatred. 2,000 years of maligning. 2,000 years of persecution. And folks, the worst is yet to come. For the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Is the church continuing? He's speaking of the church as a whole. Is the church as a body continuing in that goodness? Are we continuing in that recognition that mercy came to us not only through Jesus Christ, but through Jesus Christ the Jew? Have we somehow lifted Christ up out of his genealogical roots and forgotten what Paul told us at the beginning of the book of Romans, which I believe is a critical strand that runs through it, that Christ was made of the seed of David according to the flesh? And we should never forget that. All down through the ages, men and women shed their blood, sacrificed their lives, poured out their tears in order that God might bring through that people the Savior of the world. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. I believe that's a prophecy of the rapture of the church. And I believe that what Paul is telling us here and anticipating is that the church in the end will fail for the most part. And I believe we see it all around us. We do not pray for the nation of Israel. 
We do not stand up for the nation of Israel. We do not fulfill our role as a believer priest. Oh, we're thankful that we're believer priests. That means I can walk into the throne room of God at any time. I can come boldly to the throne of grace. I can stand with a full and open face before the Lord Jesus Christ. I can know that my sins are forgiven. I can know that he's there anytime I need him, but it's all I, 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 I. That you have a role to play. And your priesthood has a focus. Because it is a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, and that should mean something. That's coming attraction. We'll see it next session.